Did you know that the original Final Fantasy creator, Hironobu Sakaguchi, made a spiritual successor to that legendary series called Fantasian for Apple Arcade, and every level in the game is a handmade, physical miniature model. Enjoy unlimited access to over 200 incredibly fun games with no ads and no in-app purchases. From puzzle and adventure games to sports, racing, and multiplayer action games, everyone can count on finding something to love. Head to sifter.com.au forward slash arcade to start your free trial of Apple Arcade today at sifter.com.au forward slash arcade for a one month free trial of Apple Arcade and you'll be supporting independent video games journalism. This offer is for new subscribers only $9.99 a month after free trial. Plan automatically renews after trial until cancelled. Pixel 6 Hello and welcome to episode 146 of Pixel Sift. It's a show that's dedicated to the how of making indie games uh, from Australia and around the world. My name is Gianni and with me tonight is Daniel. Daniel, good evening. Thanks for coming on board. Good evening, Gianni. Thanks for having me. And our guest this week is Brendan Watts from Queensland's Subtle Boom. Uh, He's here to tell us about their game, Fledgling Heroes, which has just come out on the Nintendo Switch, like literally last week after debuting on the Apple Arcade last year. Thank you for joining us, Brendan. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, Before we jump into finding everything out about the making of Fledgling Heroes, what are we going to be talking about first, Daniel? So we will be having a look at the future of games and whose responsibility it is to archive them as time goes on. It's a big question, one that everyone has been considering at some point in their gaming career. All right, let's jump into it. Australia's best video game podcast. Subscribe to Pixel Sift on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. So as we move into new generations of games with newer and better software being introduced, older titles are becoming a rarity. And this poses questions for the future, such as whose responsibility is it to archive these games and what ultimately happens to them? Jeremy Saucier from the International Center for the History of Electronic Games in an interview with Polygon in 2013 said, in a few decades, almost no one will have a Commodore 64, so we can preserve the code and allow people without the resources we have to still play these titles down the road. With this, we can migrate the very source code of older games on floppy disks. This lets you play the games through emulators on newer computers. And so, Brendan, uh, do you have a long-term vision for Fledgling Heroes? (laughs) <laughs> uh, well, it's got an online kind of component to it where you can share levels. So that, that has a server, and I guess that server's, it won't last forever, right? Um, I mean, I've been thinking about it a bit more recently, but I mean, it, it supports you know fully offline play, and it's pretty trivial to just be able to share levels between devices uh, once the serv- server does go down. Um, but yeah, I guess it's a bit of a problem with all these kind of games as a service these uh, these days. This is the thing is that if you used to have a, a disc, like a you know a disc copy of a game back in the day when it was completely offline, as long as that disc stayed in good condition and you had the hardware to play it, you could keep playing it forever. And we've seen really interesting examples like um, the, the Doom franchise, which the, the engine itself has sort of been 
open source now and there's ways for people to modify it and use it up that way and there's lots of interesting examples and there's uh, you know it's always the joke of when some when one new piece of hardware comes out the question is asked is if it can run doom and just recently we had a, an example of if you've seen the mikey card readers that are available on the melbourne public transport system so where you used to tap on and pay for your ride um someone has actually ported a version of doom over to a mikey card reader uh where you can uh sort of play that thing it's a bit of a clunky way to do it but it's actually running on the machine do you think that is a good way for us to think about the legacy of your games would that be something you'd ever consider potentially down the track it's just once you've done with it maybe it's it's made all the money it's going to make and the server's shutting down you might open source it and send it out into the world or would, would that even work for the game that you've made <laughs> well, I was going to say, I mean, Doom's a lot simpler than games these days with all the clunky engines and all the bits and pieces that go into it. And it's a lot bigger. Um, all those things, you know, I can't imagine people playing it on a, a Mikey card reader of the future. I mean, it, it, and it's kind of reserved for the select titles. Like Doom is just so uh, iconic, right? It's it, Of course, it's going to get ported. It's kind of like a, a little game now to be able to do that. Um yeah, I don't know. I, it is it is sad the prospect of of other games eventually not being able to be uh, played at all because the hardware just doesn't exist for it. And yeah, there seems to be a bit of a, a gap uh, there. You get the early games with all the uh, emulated, um, and then there's as it gets more complex. What is a GameCube that you can't really emulate them anymore? Um, yeah. So what what happens to those? I guess it's up to the, the publishers and and so on to bring that forward. And, you know, support them on the newer devices. That's a good point because I, I think know. about games. You brought up the uh, the notion of hardware, and I think about games that require special controller. You know, like Guitar Hero, Rock Band, and as they the controls largely get out of commission, we're still seeing people emulate it through Clone Hero. That's one that's on PC, and you can use like your keyboard and mouse and stuff, and that inherently changes the gameplay experience. So I, I find that quite interesting from from that regard. And Brendan, um, what? do you think makes a game archivable in that sense? Is it just the hardware or is it the cultural impact or what do you think about that? Uh, what makes a game archivable? I mean, there's a lot of games, uh, you know, do, do, are they all going to get preserved? Um, I don't know. I, I've already, like one of the earliest games I released on mobile, it got removed from the store because we weren't updating it and you're not going to be able to get that again unless we update it. How does that feel? Uh, a bit sad. It didn't do great. It was like our first game, and so it was, it was you know, a bit of a, a learning experience. But um, it's it's also, I guess I'm not super nostalgic about it. It's it's a little sad, though. And I still have, you know, the source code. I'd like to be able to port it to the latest Unity and then release it again at some point. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, there can be a lot of feelings kind of associated with some of those games, especially those ones if you think about it from from a developer perspective, the ones that, you, you know, those first ones that you made or or sometimes it's some that the first ones that people have played. Now, we asked um, some Pixel Sift uh, listeners what they thought about some of the games that they would like to play that aren't available anymore, but what would they like to get uh, back into? And Ryan on Facebook uh, said Tokyo Jungle was a game uh, that he'd like to play. Uh, it's a post-apocalyptic animal survival game where you could literally be any animal and it also had co-op. I really love those dungeon crawler games and in this you could attempt to survive as one of many different types of animals including like a baby chick or a crocodile or a giraffe in the heart of a desolate Tokyo city. And uh, Rebecca on Facebook says, um, and this is a game that you probably still 
could play in some capacity, but uh, technology has kind of moved on. Uh, Rebecca on Facebook says, The Sims 2. Uh, it was my favorite Sims game, and I haven't played it in years, but it just doesn't work on the newest version of Windows, which makes it a difficult one to load and play anywhere. Uh, it's one of my favorite Sims games. It had so much fun content uh, and you know, being only able to play it in the household uh, when you were that only person in the household to be able to play it and thinking about that time was something that was really important to Rebecca. Um, and Titan on Twitter, Titan5150 on Twitter says, Rocket Jockey. It was a really weird game, um, but a lot of fun. But Elon Musk also worked on it as a programmer, uh, if that's interesting to you at all. That's interesting. I want to also touch upon Home of the Underdogs, which is one of the most popular abandonware sites. And in an interview with 2009 founder Sarane Achavanantakul, she said that when she, she started it because she wanted to find a copy of Sword of the Samurai, a game that she played but never quite finished, saying, quote, if you look at the very successful games, the very, very popular successful ones, I think naturally there would be a lot of spinoffs and constant remakes and modernizations. So they're not going to fade away, basically. And I think that the very, very popular titles, maybe the top 5%, will always be in circulation. And so I think they, in terms of popularity, will never be abandoned uh, per se because you'll always find a market. The other problem is that 95%. And Brendan, you mentioned uh, before we went live that you worked on Destroy All Humans 2, which is now getting a remaster. Um, and so that, that's also interesting because it's in the public consciousness and it always comes in and out of rotation. And do you have any thoughts? Like, Are you going to play the remaster when it comes out and see how it fares? Yes, yeah, so the remaster is of Destroy Humans 1, which is just before I joined Pandemic. It was my first job out of uni. Um, I uh, don't actually have a console to play the uh, remaster. So, <laughs> I mean, it would be kind of cool. It'd be nostalgic. It was like my first experience. I, I went in there and they said, all right, you've got to, uh, you're a junior, um, play the previous game all the way through. And so that was my job, you know, for the first couple of days, play Destroy Humans. Um, yeah, it's it's cool that they're remastering it. Um, What's really interesting is the um, the National Film and Sound Archive last year, sort of around September or so, announced that they were actually going to start uh, welcoming uh, video games, Australian-made ones, which um, including Destroy All Humans, which came out of um, pandemic, of course. Uh, and they said that they're, they're bringing it into the collection of more than 3 million items. Now, Jan Muller, who's the CEO of the Australian National Film and Sound Archive, said that the collection represents uh, a cultural diversity and breadth of experience of all Australians, and it's constantly evolving just like our creative industries. And they're, they're aiming to be the national leader in collecting multimedia content, and it would be impossible to accurate in, it would be impossible to accurately represent modern life without games. It's essential that games be collected alongside other forms of audiovisual media to ensure their continued preservation and access. I also think the playing games in their original context is important to some people because, you know, despite there being remasters and that and people get to relive those, you know, nostalgic feelings and stuff, um, some things change in the game, such as glitches that were popular or the meta or something like that when a new version comes out. And so I'm just, yeah, I'm also thinking about that. Um, did you have anything else, Gianni, to add? I think that's a pretty good spot to leave it. We'll, some of the times we look back into the past, sometimes we think about the future of those things. Uh, but let's right now jump into uh, our interview and learn a little bit more about something that is brand, brand new. That's Fledgling Heroes on the Nintendo Switch. Hey there. If you're enjoying the show and you want to hear more, subscribe to Pixel Sift on Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, or listen on pixelsift.com.au. See you there. 
Now, Fledgling Heroes, it's a game that did make its debut on the Apple Arcade not that long ago, um, but last week has now made uh, a big splash onto the Nintendo Switch. Finally! Yeah, <laughs> which sounds like it was an exciting moment for you, Brendan. Uh, but for people who may not have played it before or haven't come across it, can you tell us what sort of game is it and, and what were you trying to make? Uh, it's it's a fairly accessible game. It's a side-scrolling uh, platformer, flap em up I don't know, something like that. But the it, it comes from a... Um, I want to, I started with something simple, right? And it's obviously I got a bit of that Flappy Bird sort of vibe to it. But um, very early on, I made a level creator for it. So my history, my past is with um, Ski Safari and Ski Safari 2. And there were uh, endless downhill, which is lots of fun. Um, but I, you know, each kind of new game, I want to try something different. And this time it was a level maker. And so that's like really integral in the game. And so because I worked on that early, that became the tool that I used to make the levels, and then uh, now everyone who plays the game can make levels using that same. One thing I'm curious about it, when it when you were making the game and sort of in its early stages, did the mechanic of playing the game come to you first, or was it the sort of the idea about this sort of aesthetic of what it would be, uh, you know, using those sort of colourful uh, creatures and the beautiful art that's sort of included in the game? What, what was the, what was the first sort of uh, idea? So I. I um... I've uh, I've been pretty lucky with um, the success from the previous game, so I was just making this prototype on the side while raising this young family. And um, no, I I start with the, the mechanics, like I just make something fun, and um, and then went from there. And I was trying out my programmer art skills. You should see some of the early things; it's pretty funny. But I got to a point where I was like, ah, yeah, this I can't sell this. Um, and so I, I reached out to someone who had worked on. Ski Safari Adventure Time it was a spin-off that Defiant Development um, actually made with uh, Anya McNaughton. And uh, she's, she did like amazing animation um, straight out of um, you know, animation school pretty much, well, actually, no, a few years out. Um, uh, they've since transitioned, um, so they're Atticus now. And um, their style, I knew, was going to make it stand out. And um, that was, it was super important. And so we spent a lot of time just kind of iterating and, and finding this, this kind of fresh style. And um, yeah, I'm really happy with it. So Brendan, you mentioned Flappy Bird being sort of an early inspiration for fledgling heroes. And was there any other titles or any anything else that inspired you throughout the development process? Yeah, like Tiny Wings. And um, again, going back further, much further, I grew up with um, you know Super Nintendo and N64 and stuff. And, uh, Donkey Kong Country is definitely a big inspiration for like kind of the progression and the, the map overview and all that sort of stuff. Um, definitely a, a major inspiration for all that meta. The pirate aesthetic. <laughs> yeah, a bit of that too, for sure. What, we're curious about when, when you're bringing this game out and sort of targeting it to an audience, who did you want to play? Because we hear all all ages games, but there is sort of a knack to making them accessible to not just very young kids, but to everyone. Uh, of all ages, what what did you want to be your kind of core thought behind making it accessible to everyone? Well, so I, I love how Nintendo games they have this sort of appeal to uh, a younger audience, right? Like you can't say that oh that looks like a a death killing game from from Nintendo. They're not going to have that. But then they behind it, you know, they have this kind of brutal, uh, sometimes brutal anyway, um, gameplay, which which really tests your your skills. Um, so that's that was kind of a target aesthetic. I really like that. Um, so yeah, and also because um, at the time I started the game was a uh, 2017. Far out, it's a long time ago. My daughter was only one year old at that time, 
And so she's grown up with me working on the game and she's been a, a play tester for, uh, for the levels. So at least the early portion of the game, she can, she can get through pretty well. Was it helpful to have a play tester that was kind of tr- getting older as you went along so you could kind of test how the game worked? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, but it definitely gets to a point where a four-year-old's not quite old enough yet. I think a six is maybe the limit to be able to get through. Can you tell me a little bit about why you sort of wanted to target it for that sort of mobile first and using um, something like the Apple Arcade? Why was that the sort of target for the game? So a big part of it, right, is uh, like this work-life balance. Um, I work from the home office most of the time, but I go into you know an incubator space with my colleagues. And uh, because there's only a few of us, it's, you know, uh, I don't have to manage a team so much. And so because of that, you, you're constrained in like the scope of what you can do. So that's that's one of the reasons why mobile uh, is uh, such an appealing target for me, you know, trying to make something that's, much bigger scope means ramping up a much bigger team and all of the issues that can bring on. So, um, yeah, it's pretty amazing actually that the tools have allowed us to do that sort of thing in the last you know, decade that just did not exist before at all. And let's touch upon the graphic art style because as you mentioned, it's very bright and appealing and there's this comic book feel to it as you see you know, the animations and the characters going through motion. And uh, how did you work with Atticus to make the style? Um, so from the get go, I was, I was like, okay, I'm sick of textures. Um, this is going to get a little geeky, but I was sick of textures because the compression artifacts and lots of stuff and the size and scaling up to all the different size screens. And so I was like, all right, let's try vector graphics. So, um, everything's made in like Adobe illustrator and exported and then it imports as a mesh and it means it scales up from anything small to huge. And also the performance is really cool. Um, but that put in place a, a constraint, you know, you can't, because it's imported as a mesh, it's got to have these kind of jaggedy lines to make up the, the silhouettes. If you have smooth curves, it ends up having too much geometry and it's it's expensive. Because actually, originally, it was targeting you know Android phones and lower-end devices. Um, once we signed up with Apple Arcade, we were unshackled a little bit, but all the roots were still there. Um, but yeah, so Atticus worked with that um, to make that kind of bold style and the silhouettes of the and the animation having a limited frame rate because they're all hand-drawn frame by frame. There's no kind of interpolation or anything like that. Um, so they start with, a, I think it's Tomb Boom, and uh, you know animate the frames as a rough form, import it into Illustrator, it's separate artboards, and then ink them all in, and they import into the game. And, yeah, that, uh, that's kind of set the, uh, the tone for the whole game. Um, yeah, we, we tried out a few different variations, like the more mature sort of themes versus the bright and colorful. Um, but from the start, Atticus didn't want to go too like realistic in terms of the color palette. I mean, Pirate Isles is similar to the real, but um, it starts to get a bit more exaggerated as you go throughout the other worlds as well. Can, I, can we talk a little bit more about, I guess, the, uh, the when you were sort of targeting it for that initial sort of low-end Android phone and then being able to move it to uh, the Apple devices, which obviously have quite a bit of power. You've, you've now also brought it to another platform, the Nintendo Switch. Can you tell us a little bit about how sort of moving it across to the, the Switch sort of differed to developing for a, a number of different Apple devices? Um, well, it just worked as in it didn't i didn't have to worry too much about memory constraints because there's no massive amounts of textures and stuff 
Um, sure, I could maybe push the switch a little bit more, but when it's in handheld mode, um, you know, it, it, it runs really smoothly and um, that was nice. I mean, and the new Apple devices are really powerful. Um, it's actually pretty crazy. And so we were able to just push the poly counts up a bit more and you know, there's more layers in the background and more complexity in the levels and things like that, especially as it progresses. Earlier on, you mentioned that, you know, there's a level creator and you can also customize your avatar and choose different colors and feathers and kind of mix and match your own bird. And why did you feel it was important to include customization options in the game? Oh, because it's fun. <laughs> um, you know, like there's all these colors and I saw the, the way technically to do it. So I was like, well, why not? It's fun to be able to change colors um, at least. You know, we've got plans for other stuff, but um, for now it's colors. Later we'll have, you know, scrolling textures and uh, and hats, of course. We'll have hats at some point. But um, yeah, we're planning to, to release updates, of course. Mm. Um, Can never go wrong to with hats. expand that. No, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Yeah, the very first game, the one I was talking about before, that's no longer on the uh, the App Store. It's um, that was Rocket Bunnies, and we added hats to that. It's mm. that's what you have to do, right? And are there um, have you seen standout custom levels from the community that's you know particularly resonated yeah. with you? And yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think Atticus has been sharing a few on social media, but um, it's been really cool. It's only been a week, and uh, it's a pretty tight user base. Um, you know, the people who want to make levels is as a proportion of the whole. It's there's not that many. Um, so, uh, and but I've seen the progression of them learning how to use the tools, and it's been really cool. Um, and it's it's actually the update's not out on Apple Arcade yet, but that's going to increase the user base uh, for level creation even further. Um, yeah, no, I'm really really actually happy with that. Uh, it means I'll be able to go okay. You go make some more content for the game, please. Um, <laughs> and they can keep it going, um, which would be really nice. But I've been making more levels as well. I, I keep uploading new levels to the level creation. We, we touched on this a little bit in the previous topic, talking about how long a game can last. Is this, the I guess, a way that you can sort of comfortably say, all right, we've done enough on the game because it will now still continue to exist in some format and people will keep working on it forever? Or, or, or you know, how does that make you sort of feel about when this game will be done? Uh, well, you know, the devices won't last forever. Uh, who, who knows how long certain things will, will last? But, I mean, we have plans for a few years. Um, we'll work on other stuff as well, but... We have plans for some big updates, adding new worlds, which each new world will add a bunch of new mechanics and new birds and stuff. So we still plan to um, push the content, the possible content out. Um, and then, um, yeah, no, I, I like the idea that it can, can live on. And we're looking into, you know, setting up a community outside the game where people can talk and discuss ideas and ask us devs how to make things and tips and tricks and stuff like that. So looking forward to that. When, you, when you're developing the game from the beginning, did it stray a lot from its initial design ideas or did it stay roughly within what you guys had anticipated? Yeah, actually, well, the original was Endless Levels. Um, and then I made the editor and it became fixed level lengths. And then I thought, well, this is cool. I can use this to introduce new mechanics slowly over time. Um, and... I don't know, we, we kind of have a, fra a fairly free-form way of doing things. We go and brainstorm, we get some whiteboard, and we figure out, oh, this would be fun to add. Let's have lizards that are pirates. Yeah, sure, why not? And, and some can be cannon shooters. And and then we got into the fairy forest, and we're like, oh, let's have 
lizards that are wizards because it that's fun <laughs> um yeah no we just we just kind of have a suite of, of ideas that would be fun to choose from and we just um just go with it i i know that um it's there are different ways of making games there's like the top down you make a story and here's the arc this is how everything goes together but because the intention was always to have this uh, level creation as a big part of the kind of user experience beyond the core part of the game. Um, we haven't had to craft a whole arc of the game with the giant big boss. I mean, each world has its own boss, but uh, I we did that like intentionally so that each world is contained. You start, you uh, learn about the birds and the new mechanics and the new uh, hazards and stuff, and then you beat the boss, and that's... It's like it's a dragon boss, and then it wraps up that world. And then you can move on to the next one, and it, and it means that we can add new worlds going forward, and they're kind of self-contained. They add the new batch of content. One thing I'm curious about is, would you have any advice um, for people who might want to, you know, say get their game onto Apple Arcade or bring something to the Switch? Something that you didn't anticipate before you started developing for the platform that uh, you wish you knew at the beginning that people might be able to learn from. Uh, well, they're two very different platforms, um, and they are because uh, you know arcade is it's it's a fairly high bar. Like um, we got tapped on the shoulder because I'd, I'd made the previous games that were successful. They knew me for a certain thing, but also we showed up on PAX like 2018 on the floor, the expo floor, and that's how we had the visibility. Um, but um, you've got to release a game, and you can't expect the first one to do amazing. Um, that's that was my experience. I think that's most people's experience. Get something out there, um, and you'll learn a lot just by getting something out. Uh, and do it in your own time um, while you're working some other job, so that you don't pour your, your own funds or get a mortgage or anything like that. That would be silly because it is such a big risk. Because um, it is all about building up your experience, you're learning about these new tools, new ways of putting things together. And as you get faster at iterating, you can produce better stuff. Um, but that all takes time. You can't just pick it up and do it. I've been coding since the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel a bit old. But, but it's always good to have another you know, job keep, on the on the, on the the side so that you can, uh, you know, keep keep yourself grounded and keep paying the bills. That's, yeah, that's right. I mean, that's how I made Ski Safari 1. I did it in a couple of months and I had another job. It was a bit soul draining. Well, not soul draining, but it was a not really what I wanted to do. And so when I worked on the game, it was like, yes, and you pour your passion into it. And that's that's really cool. I think that's a good way to get started, at least. Um, Switch, uh, I would advise getting a publisher because the uh, the back end, the platform management, is uh, it's pretty full on. Um, I mean, we figured it out, but it's pretty full on. We're going to get a, a Japanese publisher for Japan. That's a whole other can of worms. But... Um, yeah, no. Apple Arcade's been fantastic, though, as in terms of because you see where the the mobile market's trending. It's it's going towards well, it's it's already there, like free to play all across the board, and you're relying on ads, and then you've got to pay for ads, and it's yeah, it's nuts. Um, and so it it came in at just the right time. We're like, I don't want to make that game. I just want to make a game that you pay money for. And then Arcade came in as well. What if um, you know, we sort out your development costs, and then you know, I can't tell you much more about how everything else works, but it works out to be much better. It's a premium experience and it's uh, it's really good for privacy, which is hard as a developer. Um, you've got to make sure everything is tightened down. 
How has that reception been uh, for for players playing the game? Uh, Does it make the sort of game that you've made more appealing to them, do you think, um, when they're they're trying to sort of play it? Uh, Yes, I think so. I mean, that the Apple Arcade market... Because, I mean, how else would you pay for this game if you you didn't do it? It would be an ad-based game. It would have timers and things, I'd imagine, right? Well, that was not the plan, but I also knew that it wasn't going to be as viable that way. But because I was writing on the previous successes, like, well, we're going to release this. I'm going to charge a few dollars or something. And then that's, it's going to do what it's going to do. And maybe we'll get featured and that will uh, boost it. Um, so we got actually really fortunate being able to go on Apple Arcade um, at that time. It was perfect timing. Um, so very, very lucky there. Well, you can find it right now on Apple Arcade. You can play it on your phone or you can play it on the Apple TV on, on your Mac as well. Uh, and there's a newly released version which came out last week, which is available now for the Nintendo Switch. came out last Thursday. So if you're listening to this, uh, you can load up the eShop right now and, and check it out. It's called Fledgling Heroes by uh, Queensland's Subtle Boom. Uh, for more information on that, you can head to fledglingheroes.com or, or give uh, Fledgling Heroes a, a follow on Twitter and Facebook, which is just at Fledgling Heroes. Pixel Sift! It's not Pixel Sift, it's Pixel Sift. Pixel Sift! Well, that's pretty much all the time we have for today. So thank you very much for watching or listening to episode 146. Just a reminder, you can always be part of the episode as well. Every week um, we will ask a question of you and you can contribute to it by like telling us about what your favorite game that you can't play anymore but you'd love to get back into so thank you to everyone who contributed to that uh, question and keep an eye on our social media pages for more now this episode has been hosted by myself Uh, my name's gianni and thank you for joining me on the show daniel thanks gianni and thank you brendan for spending some time with us tonight telling us a little bit about the process of making fledgling heroes Uh, we appreciate you joining us and telling us a little bit about it no worries pleasure thanks for having me now, Pixel Sift is produced by Scott Quigg, Sarah Island, Fiona Bartholomeus, Mitch Lowe, Daniel Ang, and I am the executive producer, uh, Gianni Tijuani. And as always, we'll be sticking links to what we've talked about in the show notes on our website, which is at pixelsift.com.au. That's www.pixelsift.com.au. You can also come and join us on Discord. We'd love to have you there. That's pixelsift.com.au forward slash Discord, where you can share your creative work, talk about topics and games and anything else. pixelsift.com.au forward slash Discord. And also, if you like what we do, can we ask you for a favor? We need your help to share the show, so please tell a friend, subscribe your brothers and sisters, start someone's journey into podcasts, because we know that getting started is tricky, but once you're in, you'll love it too much to leave. And our next episode will be recorded in a fortnight's time, so you can give us a follow at twitch.tv forward slash pixelsift. It'll go live on Thursday, the 28th of May at 7.30pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. You can come join us, be part of the episode. Uh, Next week, uh, we will be playing pixel sift plays where we feature some of the indie games that have shown up on our show and others from all around the world that's all for this week thank you for joining us and until next time have fun dj
you know that the original Final Fantasy creator, Hironobu Sakaguchi, made a spiritual successor to that legendary series called Fantasian for Apple Arcade, and every level in the game is a handmade, physical miniature model. Enjoy unlimited access to over 200 incredibly fun games with no ads and no in-app purchases. From puzzle and adventure games to sports, racing, and multiplayer action games, everyone can count on finding something to love. Head to sifter.com.au forward slash arcade to start your free trial of Apple Arcade today at sifter.com.au forward slash arcade for a one month free trial of Apple Arcade and you'll be supporting independent video games journalism. This offer is for new subscribers only $9.99 a month after free trial. Plan automatically renews after trial until cancelled. 